Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome today's guest, Unilever's Chief Human Resources Officer, Lena Nair. In a career spanning almost 30 years with this truly global organisation, Lena has held a wide range of pivotal positions, including Vice President of Human Resources South Asia, Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion, and Global Senior Vice President for Leadership and Organisational Development. Amongst many firsts, it is worth noting that Lena is the first female and the youngest ever Chief Human Resources Officer of Unilever. Her purpose? To unite the human spark for a better business and a better world. Well, Lena, a very warm welcome to to the podcast. Um, in that brief introduction that I gave earlier, I think uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that I underplayed what an uh, extremely impressive, almost 30-year career that you've had with the consistency of ground, groundbreaking achievements and, uh, and your wealth of business accolades certainly speaks to that. But I'd like to start right at the beginning, if I may, and reflecting on your, your early years in India, growing up in um, Kolhapur and West, uh, Southwest India. What was it or who, who were your key influences at that period of your life? Yeah, you know, I almost have to stretch to remember. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up in a small uh, place called Kolhapur, which is my hometown and continues to be my hometown. I grew up, it was, you know, we were the first batch of the first proper school that came for girls in town. So I've seen in our school, we were standard three, then it became standard five, then standard seven, then standard eight, and so on and so forth. So I had no idea what I would do with my life. Yeah, I was ambitious. I wanted to do something, but I really didn't see opportunities. There were no role models of women working in positions or any of that. I do think both my mother and father played a very, very strong role in my early career, in my early ambition, because dad was a huge sponsor. He really wanted me to go for it, not be constrained by what I was hearing every day in the town, which is, you know, you're a girl, you can't do this all the limitations of what it meant to be a girl growing up in small town India. But my dad was very ambitious and always sponsored me strongly. I must say my mom was petrified because she was like, you're so ambitious and you want to study so much and who's going to marry you? And it's going to be difficult to find you a good husband. And she was constantly petrified because people around her told her that your daughter is talented and she's never going to get a chance to apply it because you know she's never going to marry someone who's going to support her career. How is she ever going to do this? So in a strange way, that also fueled my determination to do something. I must say another very, very important influence was my, uh, you know, uh, mentor in engineering school who actually encouraged me to look at an MBA in human resources because he said, you're going to make a far better HR person than an engineer. <laughs> some of those early years uh, instilled in me a huge sense of responsibility saying that you know if I, I'm getting opportunities that so many are not getting so every opportunity I get I'm going to grab it with both hands and make something of it it also instilled in me a huge sense of resoluteness and determination saying it's okay I'm I can take a lot of criticism in my stride I joke that I have such a big thick skin I you know I can I, I can sort of uh, take all the barbs and criticisms that come my way so it gave me some of the resolute determination and it's given me a huge sense of humility because I know where I started. I know my roots. I know where I come from. And it keeps me very grounded and humble. And still very connected to your roots. So clearly very important to you still. Yes, it is. It is. 
as I mentioned, it's been a difficult few weeks because I lost my mother to COVID four weeks ago and I traveled back to my hometown. So it continues to be a big part of who I am and meeting all my school friends and reminding me of where I come from and my sort of, you know, the little houses we lived in till we could afford to build a place of our own. All of those are stories you never forget. And my my father also had a very entrepreneurial journey. It was a pretty much rags to riches story. He and his brothers came with very little migrating from the south of India to the west of India. So those are also some of the values that are instilled in me that, you know, it doesn't matter what cards you're dealt with. It's what you make of them. It's, you know, everybody has the opportunities. There's abundance in the universe. Be, you know, believe that good things are going to happen to you. Be positive, believe in your own hard work, your own ambition. So some of those entrepreneurial values have also stayed with me that I saw my father role modeling as someone who had very little but built a family and built a business, uh, continuously aspiring for more. As I said, I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of your mother. Deepest condolences, but uh, you've clearly got some uh, very strong and impressive, inspirational role models in your, in your parents there that have made you the person you are today and, and underpinned your success. It's fantastic. So, so you talked about your time at college uh, as a studying for en- engineering, which at the time is obviously a very mo- male-dominated sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did that come about and, and why the switch then on to, to management and into HR? You know, I did engineering because I was good at maths. And in those days, you know, there wasn't much sophisticated career counseling or any of that. You did maths, you were good at maths, you sort of liked your physics and you said, okay, let me do engineering. I don't like biology as much. I'm not going to be a doctor. It was as simplistic as that. So I really enjoyed maths and physics. So I thought engineering it is. Also, there was always this little bee in my bonnet about doing things that I was not being allowed to do. So my brothers, my cousin brothers were all studying for engineering and I was being told girls don't do engineering. So that's a sure sign for me to say, why not? I am going to do it. I'm going to do engineering if I'm being told I can't do it. So that that's what's how it started. I mean, enjoyed the intellectual challenge of engineering. It was a beautiful college, Walton College of Engineering. I mean, there were like 18 girls and 3000 boys. I can't remember all the boys clearly, but all the boys remember the girls because there were just 18 of them. So uh, I, I loved my four years. I loved the intellectual pursuit of being an engineer because you learned great things. But when I started working as an engineer, I realized that my heart was not in it. I was not enjoying being a telecom engineer. I would look forward to the times in the day when I would meet other people because those were the bits I enjoyed the most. So I realized that my heart was not singing. You know, it wasn't gripping me. I wasn't giving it my best. I worked for about six months and I had a mentor, the person who taught us management in engineering school. Professor Tilvali, who was a great mentor and continued to be a great mentor. We lost him to Parkinson's a few years ago, but he continued to be an important part of my life forever. And he sat me down and he said, you should do something that is about people. That's about leadership. That's about, you know, because that's when you get going when you feel like you have these connections, when your empathy comes to the fore that gets you going. So you really need to consider a career in MBA and do an HR. So that's how it started. And I went and told my father that, you know, I wanted to go and do an MBA and specialize in human resources or personnel, as it was called in those days. It wasn't even called fancy human resources in those days. It was called personnel or industrial relations. And he was deeply disappointed. He said, why would an electronics and telecom engineer? And telecom was the buzz everywhere. Telecom was where everyone wanted to be. He said, why would you give all that up and go into HR and personnel? It's a back office function. Nobody really cares for it. I was disappointed, but determined. And he had taught me well to, you know, hold my own and, you know, say, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. 
And I then went to XLRI, which was an institute where I had to travel by train for 42 hours. So it was like going to the other end of the world to get to this place in the east of India where I did my management studies in human resources. Loved it, XLRI, loved it two years, and I knew I'd found my calling. I, I enjoyed every subject. It all made sense to me. I was on fire, you know, always falling into place beautifully. And I then joined Hindustan Unilever as a management trainee almost 30 years ago. So I have been married longer to Unilever than I have been to my husband. And I absolutely fell in love with Unilever. And I started off in the first six years by doing a lot of what I call grassroots roles, running production, learning about employee relations. I worked in factories, I worked in sales. I lived in a rural village for eight weeks as part of the training. So Slowly but surely, I started falling in love with Unilever and started learning all about the business. How are things made? How are things sold? And I think it's a very big part of running a business well, knowing exactly how all the pieces work. And then I did a number of roles in human resources, became the HR head of the company, then became uh, HR head for South Asia, and then moved to London eight years ago and became the chief HR officer five years, five and a half years ago. So, and in every job I've done, I have been the first woman doing it, including being the chief HR officer. And that has been an incredible sense of privilege and a sense of burden. Because being the first, yes, there's some joy in breaking some of the glass basements and glass ceilings, but there's also the burden of being the first because everything you do is magnified. The good that you do, everyone sees it and talks about it, and the bad that you do, nobody forgets. So you become a very visible token for all women. You're not all women, you're just one woman, but you become a token for all women. So it's been a privilege and a burden. I use both of the words, uh, you know, and, and it shaped a lot of how I have pushed for greater inclusion, how I pushed to have policies, systems, practices that support men and women to be hugely successful at whatever they do and unleashing their potential. And how have you maintained your, your positivity and... Uh resilience in the face of that burden and no doubt many challenges going into first female roles at any level yeah you know one is by connecting to your purpose you know I really believe in the inner game of leadership it's one of the things we teach at Unilever a lot and as a center for army leadership I'm sure you do a lot of, a lot of research on leadership we believe that the inner game of leaders fuels and strengthens their outer game. And by inner game, we mean a sense of purpose and service, mm -hmm. a sense of personal resilience and being able to bounce back from failure and a learning agility. And we believe these three qualities that constitute your inner game, if you continue strengthening them, you have the courage to play your outer game, to have that business acumen, to have the passion for high performance, to make a difference in everything you do. So I think I've always believed in that, that keep focusing on your inner game. You know, when things are difficult, go back and ask yourself, why am I doing this? What's my purpose? What's the sense of service? Who am I serving? What's the consumer and customer and all of this? So going back to my sense of purpose and service has helped me a lot, always. And I and consciously working on my resilience, putting into place small practices that help my resilience, whether it's writing my gratitude journal every night to give myself, to remind myself of all the things I'm grateful for in the day, 
whether it's a little practices like having a 15 minute meditation in the morning to just clear my mind and clear my thinking, whether it's going for a long walk or run and connecting with nature because nature has its own regenerative powers, but doing the little, little things that give me resilience or prayer. Prayer is very important for me. You know, praying gives me clarity, gives me strength, gives me my faith helps me. And, you know, it's more spiritual than necessarily religious. I'm happy to pray in a church, in a temple, in a mosque. It doesn't matter as long as it feels like an environment where I have some peace and quiet to, to think and hear my thoughts and feel my feelings. So focusing on my inner game has helped. Also reaching out to mentors, you know, always having mentors and sponsors in your life whom you can talk to, people who care about you, people who give you an objective perspective. My husband is one of a huge anchor for me. I talk to him about everything under the sun, a bad day, good day. So sometimes getting out of your own inner critical mode and having people who care about you, give you ideas, give you views on how you can make something work has also helped me a lot. So inner game, that's my magical word. Keep your inner game going. And past that, in a game, you there talked about failure and, and, and I guess how you how you deal with failure as well. And um, and you said previously that it's failure is an important part of uh, an individual's journey, a leader's journey, um, and turning, as you say, moments of misery into a moment of delight, which could be a defining experience. So so how important is failure for leaders? And is there an example, a personal example you have where you failed yeah. but, but but sort of reframed it and then come back stronger? Yeah. Oh, so many. You know, when people see you um, in a senior role, they all assume like you had it easy. It was this linear curve. Everything went great, 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 great. And up you climbed. And it isn't like that. Korea is full of ups and downs, ups and downs. You have a bad boss sometimes and you get upset. You have a difficult problem that you didn't manage to solve. It's a combination of things. You have so many things that go right for you but you have a lot of things that go wrong and you've got to learn from both. You know, one of my beliefs is that failure is a stepping stone to success. You know, failure actually gives you the opportunity to leapfrog. Let me explain what I mean by that. It gives you, because you've failed, you can now think without any self-limiting beliefs. Let me give you an example. You know, I had just been announced as the HR head for Hindustan Unilever, the executive director of human resources for Hindustan Unilever, one of the, you know, the first woman in 90 years to be appointed to the top table, blah, blah, blah. So it's feeling pretty good, you know, okay, this is good, you know, and people were saying it's great. They've given this opportunity to somebody who's in her early thirties. Isn't that wonderful? And, you know, India's largest private company, blah, blah, blah. I was getting carried away. I was loving it. You know, it's all good. And in the first three months of me being in that job, we had a massive, employee relations challenge in one of our factories in Northeast. And we had a strike that went on for three months. I couldn't resolve it. It went into lockout. It was terrible. We tried and resolving it. And the very newspapers and magazines and everyone who had written these beautiful things about me saying, oh, it's nice to have a young woman at the helm of things. How nice. Carried terrible articles on me. It took three months to say, Oh, we gave her the opportunity too early. Maybe it was too early. Maybe she doesn't know how hard it is to manage unions, blah, 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 blah. So my failure was pretty public. Yeah, and the humiliation was pretty public. Everybody knew about it. That I couldn't manage to resolve a very difficult employee relations challenge. But what happened was my team rallied around me. And as I looked into the details, what I realized was 
our record in employee relations wasn't as great. We had 46 factories and 96 trade unions in India at that time. And we used to lose 50,000 mandates a year on account of employee relations struggle. Yeah. And what this forced my team and I to say is, hey, we're going to look into this and we're going to set this right. Yeah. And now that we failed, I've already been declared a failure. It's okay. Now we can take the risk. There's no problem. And we said, what's the goal we're going to set to say we're going to reduce the employee relations, days lost on account of employee relations in this company. We're going to improve our employee relations. And in a normal year, you would say I'd improve it by 10% or 20% and you'd, you'd feel pretty good. But because the humiliation was so public, my team said, no, we're going to go for a goal of zero. We're not going to lose a single day on account of employee relations trouble in this company ever. We're going to go from 50,000 to zero days lost every year on account of employee relations. Massive goal. But what does that does to you is that it forces you to think out of the box. So we did so many unconventional things. We took some of our union leaders to Japan and showed them what productivity looks like. We took them to consumer houses to see how consumer needs were changing. We set into place scholarship schemes for children of workers. We did things that had never been experimented in India or even Asia before. And that changed the climate of employee relations in the company. And year one, the numbers dropped to 200 days lost on account of employee relations. We didn't hit zero, but we hit 200 from 50,000 to 200. And year two, we hit zero. And it stayed like that for 10 years now, you know, way after I have left the country, it's continued to stay like that. So what it taught me is that failure helps you to leapfrog. If you take that moment of misery and you sit with your team and you say, this is a miserable moment, we have failed and we have failed badly. How can we do things that three years later, we'll look back and say, you know what? That wasn't a moment of misery. Thanks to that failure, we did, we leapfrog, we did things differently and we made that moment of misery into a moment of delight. So today, when I look back, I know that zero days lost on account of employee relations would have never happened if I hadn't failed and failed so badly. So that is something that's shaped my thinking. So be open to failure, especially when you want to pioneer new things, you want to experiment with new things, you're going to fail far more than you're going to succeed. I mean, everybody pioneering is going to fail far more than they succeed. And therefore, having the attitude to say, I'm going to make that moment of misery into a moment of delight has helped me leapfrog my moments of failure. One thing that jumped out to me there was your, your talk about the team and how it was the, the team that rallied around you and it was the team that came up with the out-of-the-box thinking. <laughs> just maybe reflect on on yeah how you manage your team to achieve that pretty impressive success you know, and how you use the diversity of that team the different talents and, and and enable them to to deliver the results that you had the vision for you know a couple of things one is truly listening to every voice in the room this is something i'm very particular about and if i'm being if i have 10 people in a room it doesn't matter what level of authority seniority you are i want to hear every voice in the room and even if somebody presents to me, a team presents to me, and it's one person presenting and telling me the whole story, I'll then take a pause and say, okay, I want to hear every voice. What do you think? Is this something we should do? So truly caring about everyone's views and listening deeply is a rich source of insight and wisdom for me. The other is always ensuring your team is inclusive around you. I've Made, I've always pushed for greater balance, clearly, because I know what it is to be on the minority at any table, being the only woman in the room for years and years and decades and decades, but always ensuring this balance, balance in every sense of the word. 
Yeah. So you have a more diverse team. So they bring different life experiences, different lived experiences. So it becomes richer. The third thing is to try and create an environment of psychological safety. It's not easy because people are so scared to speak up. People are so scared when they see authority because they think they'll be penalized for failure or they'll be penalized for bad ideas. So going out on a limb to say, it's okay, all ideas are welcome and creating a psychological safety is so important. I can't say I succeed all the time, but we try. I try all the time to create an environment of psych safe, psychological safety where people can share their deepest concerns, their wildest ideas and not feel judged. So I really, really believe in the power of teams. I really believe gone are the days of the superhero leader, the superman and woman who comes into the room, Wonder Woman, Superman, who knows all the answers, who, you know, uh, just says, okay, that's the problem. Here's the answer. Let's go and do it. I believe those days are long gone. Today's problems are complex, multifaceted, and you need the wits, the energy, the wisdom of the entire team around you. So a huge sense of humility and curiosity drives me, truly saying, hey, I don't know the answers, but I'm pretty sure we can all figure this out together. You know, feeling that confidence and giving a space for that is being a very important part of my leadership. Uh, Lena, I wanted to come back to the gender balance you spoke about there, because when you first joined um, Hindustan Unilever, I understand that only 2% of employees were women. And last year you achieved that 50-50. Uh, across the across the world, including in the Stan Lever. Yeah, that's that's you know a phenomenal achievement. How do organisations then break down gender inequalities, and and how have you challenged societal societal norms to to achieve that 50-50 split? Yeah, I think it's fantastic that we've achieved balance in every country we operate in. So nobody can hide behind saying, oh, Pakistan is difficult, or you know, Taiwan's difficult. We've done it in every country. Yeah, in all countries we operate and we've stepped up. We, ha- we have our gender norms in all those countries are twice of that of societal averages. And so if 20% of corporate India is female, our numbers in Hindustan Lever are 43% and so on and so forth. So everywhere we've doubled it. So what I have learned, one is it needs tremendous leadership commitment. Yeah, you've got to stay the course. It's taken us 10 years to get to where we are, from where we declared the ambition to when we made it happen. So you've got to stay the course month after month, review the numbers, review what's going on. Our Global Diversity Board is led by our CEO and some of the senior most leaders in the business are part of it. So this is not delegated. This is led from the front. You've got to take it seriously. The second learning is you've got to focus on numbers and you've got to focus on the culture. You've got to do both. You've got to set targets for saying, how am I going to improve it in every part of the business? But you've also got to focus on the culture, the training on uh, leadership uh, for purpose and performance, you know, inclusion training, unconscious bias training, unstereotype training. We do a ton of training. Even during COVID times, all our top 700 leaders went through seven days of training on inclusion because we take that seriously. You know, so we had seven days of virtual sessions of going through inclusion training, besides getting feedback on our own levels of inclusion, every single person. So you've got to focus on both the numbers and culture. And you've got to do both together. The third is to challenge the systems and processes around you. So for example, we have something called balance slates, yeah, which is for every appointment you make, you've got to have a balance slate. You can meet two talented men, then you've got to meet two talented women. The appointment is always made on merit, but you've got to meet as many women as you meet men for a final interview. So your slates have to be balanced. If your slates are not balanced, 
I have to sign off while your slate is not balanced in that particular case, which is rare. So you have to balance the slates. For example, the other thing we do is something called a gender appointment ratio. We look at every person, every leader over five years, the top 500 leaders who pretty much lead a lot of the company. And we say for the last five years, how many opportunities you had to make an appointment in your team? Let's say in five years, you had 100 opportunities to make in your team. How many times did you appoint a man? How many times did you appoint a woman? It's a simple ratio. Number of women appointed divided by number of men appointed. So what becomes increasingly clear is in these 500 leaders, there are some leaders who are just not making appointments. They have excuses, a ton of them. They have reasons. But you know, beyond appointment, it becomes hard for you to explain away when you had 100 chances while you appointed a woman 10 times and 90 times appointed a man. So you've got to hold leaders accountable for appointments and for changing the needle. This is not somebody else's problem. You've got to hold each leader accountable for the appointments they make and show them a mirror. No judgment. The mirror tells us that you've not been making appointments. It's for you to reflect and think about what's going on here. So you have to, and we set into place a slew of progressive policies and practices everywhere across the world, which is right for that context. You know, it's not one size fits all. So job sharing, for example, is very popular in Europe, particularly in Germany and a few other countries. So we do job sharing where two men or two women share a job or two, two people share a job for three days a week. One does Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, other does Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We have a practice, you know, in Pakistan, for example, we were recruiting women onto the shop floor. We got their parents to come and live for a week in the company guest house and see the jobs the women were doing on the shop floor. So they felt reassured that their women who were doing manufacturing jobs, there was nothing to be worried about. So we've had so many innovative practices and policies and systemic changes to ensure that we are tackling gender parity. It doesn't happen easily. You've got to go through every policy practice system that's coming in the way of equality and challenge that and put something else in its place. So, for example, some of the things we discovered was some of the way the job applications are written put off women when the language is too destitute. It puts off women. So rethink that. When you have a selection panel, you can't have an all-male panel interviewing men and women. You've got to have a mixed and balanced panel interviewing men and women. So simple things like that in the way you select, in the way you uh, you know, ask the job applications. You've got to look at everything you do, systems, practice, policy, and make it right for equity. So it's a lot of work. So three things, tremendous senior leadership commitment and a relentless focus. Number two, focus on numbers and culture. Number three, tackle systemic bias. Check everything you do. I want to come back to culture because I've got a, a couple of questions in relation to that. And I think um, that's really important in your business of in over 190 countries. But the changes you've spoken about there, it's been a rapid rate of change over quite a short period of time, relatively short period of time for the change you're talking about. Was there resistance to change across the organization for some of those, uh, some of those moves? And, and how did you tackle that at the senior level? There is tremendous resistance to change always. You know, I have a third, a third, a third formula. A third of people, a third of leaders get it. They want to make the world a better place. They want to try and create balance. They want to cry, you know, do the right things. Focus on them. Create a coalition of the willing so that you can drive change harder with them. The next third sit on the fence. They will see which way the wind is blowing and then they'll blow in that direction. And then there's a third who will never get it, who will not believe in it. 
And no matter what you do, even if you stand on your head upside down, they're not going to get it. Don't waste your energy on them because they'll pull you down. They'll tell you all the barriers. They'll tell you all the reasons why it can't be done. So focus your energies on a third who get it. They get it. They're keen. They're early adopters. They're willing to try out stuff with you. They're willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. Focus your energies on them. And then when as the momentum of change begins to build, the next third will get on the bus. And then the remaining third, you've got to find ways to encourage them to move on because they're never going to agree to any of the progressive changes you want to make in the company. So you've got to tackle it like that. So you can't solve the resistance everywhere, but you can get the help of the places where the resistance is the least and get on with them. So when we were driving gender balance, for example, for the top 2000 leaders, we ran workshops on why gender balance is important. Because it's not enough to say, oh, half the world is women. So we need women in business. People don't get it. People have to go through the process of saying, make it personal for them. Why I want to create the world to be more gender balanced. For some, it's because talent, equally talented men and women are there and we must attract the women as well. For some, it's about the consumer. 50% of the people who shop, 80% of the women who shop, our products are women. Maybe we need more women in the business. For some, it's deeply personal. I have a daughter. I want her to have an equal chance at succeeding. We went through a journey with the top 2,000 people to get them to make it personal. Why is this important for Unilever? But why is this important for you? Why do you believe in it? Why do you want to believe in it? So turning to to culture then, uh, which you've spoken about, Unilever employs 150,000 people, I believe. Yeah, 150,000 people in 190 countries. 190 yeah. countries. Uh, so truly global. And it's been described as one of the world's largest and most geographically uh, diverse consumer goods businesses. So, so how do you then bring 190 different cultures together under one vision, one purpose? How do you create that? <laughs> you know, it is by setting principles and guardrails in place, but allowing every country to contextualize it and make it relevant for them. So there is no one size fits all. We are in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. We've got to recognize that. So for example, and you will be surprised at how homogeneous people are about the right thing. So for example, we believe in purpose workshops for everyone. Everyone goes to discover your purpose workshops and they discover, because I believe strongly in it. We all believe that's the way you become a business. That's a force for good. But the way it's translated and the way it's delivered in every country is different. The word purpose doesn't resonate in some countries. You've got to find the word that resonates in that culture. So the way you do it, the how changes. So you get people aligned behind the vision, the principles, and you set guardrails in place. But then you set them free to make that right and relevant in the way it makes sense for them. Like I said, the Pakistan example where they were bringing parents to the shop floor to encourage them to see that there was no danger to their women. That worked in Pakistan. It's not relevant for Japan. It's not relevant for UK. So you've got to continuously set the guardrails, set the principles, get everyone buying into the vision, get a common understanding of where the world is headed to, but leave them free on how they make it happen. And, and how important is it then for you as a senior leader to be, to be culturally aware, culturally competent, if you like, and to adapt your different approaches, a different approach to different cultures? All the time. You know, uh, I was expatriated uh, eight or eight and a half, nine years ago. I came to the UK and started living here. And before that, I was running HR for Asia. And I can tell you, in the way you communicate in Asia is very different. There, 
they don't care about the messenger as much as they care about, they don't care about the message as much as they care about the messenger. If they trust you and they believe you have intentions in the right place, they will follow you anywhere. If you say, let's jump out of the window, they'll say, okay, how high? Let's do it. But here in more Western countries, for example, the messenger and the message are important. So here, just because I say the world is shining, let's all go, they won't come. I've got to show a plan on a page. I've got to show the next three steps we're going to take. What are the building blocks of the vision? So everything you do, the way you communicate as a leader, the way your presence is experienced, while you're being authentic to who you are, you've got to adapt your style of communication and the way your messages land based on the culture you're part of, for sure. You know, there's just no question. You, I mean, all cultures appreciate leaders who are more authentic, who bring their best selves to the workplace, who bring positive energy, because flowers also follow the sun eventually. So messages of positivity, optimism, being able to uh, trust are messages that universally resonate. But you've got to change how you land those messages in every culture because it lands differently. So you've got to be culturally very aware. So one of the first things I do when I land, because I used to travel about 30 weeks a year prior to COVID, first things I would do is spend time with the local leadership on what's the context, what are the things going on, speak to people, try a few words in the local language, because people love familiarity with their language for you to express your, yourself in. So you've got to do that. You've got to understand. You've got to seek to understand before you get your messages out there. And it leads me to my next question, which is about developing people. And you touched on it and on a few occasions in, in some of your answers there. How do you develop your leadership and also specifically your leaders across your organization? You know, everybody in this company has a future fit plan. What we believe, and we have committed externally and publicly that 100% of our workforce will have a future fit skill set by 2025. So this is not just an internal commitment. We've gone out there and put this target out there in public domain. We report on it in every annual report, et cetera. So a future fit plan has four parts to it. And everybody in the company, senior leader, junior leader, everybody has it. Because I believe leadership has nothing to do with hierarchy. Leadership is your influence, your voice, your impact, you know? People follow you. If they follow you, then you don't care about what the reporting lines are. If your message appeals to them, they follow you. And uh, there are four parts to the future for plans. Purpose, what's your purpose? What's your energy? How are you feeling mentally, physically, emotionally? You know, we ask that in people's future fit plan because we want to know where they're coming from. If there's no sense of well-being, they're not going to be able to improve their skills or their leadership. The third part of the future fit plan is what are the leadership areas that you want to improve in? I mentioned we have a fabulous leadership model that talks about the inner game and the outer game. So we look at how you're doing on the inner game, how you're doing on the outer game and where is that you want to improve. And the fourth thing is the skills you need to build because we recognize that the world is changing fast, skills are changing fast. So how do you know the skills that you need? Is it data analytics? Is it Gartner software writing skills? A combination of all these four things is a future fit plan. Once you enter the future fit plan into a beautiful learning system called Degree, then you start getting curated material virtually that's fed to you every day or once a week on what you should be learning. And then we have two fabulous training centers, which are currently closed because of COVID, but two fabulous training centers, one in London, one in Singapore, where we provide face-to-face -face training 
on the inner game and outer game of leadership and on some of the important skills that are important for everyone. For example, for us right now, e-commerce and how people are buying online is a big part of what every one of us needs to know because we are for, we work for a consumer goods company. So future fit plans and personalizing everybody's future fit plan and providing everyone personalized content, both virtually and face-to-face is a big part of our learning philosophy. But the most important thing is role modeling that lifelong learning is here to stay. So people who are active learners get stars. Every country that I visit, I would recognize the people who learn all the time. We would celebrate the active learners in every country. They And all of that, you've got to do all of that. People who are putting 100 hours of learning, get special certificates. You've got to do all of that to build the culture of lifelong learning where everybody feels good about learning all the time. I, I'm very public about what I'm trying to learn every year in my personal life. You know, uh, Last year was Spanish. This year, I still need to complete my Spanish because I'm not as fluent as I would like. And I've also decided I want to learn, you know, maybe horse riding. That's what I'm thinking about this year. So I talk about it. We all talk about things we're trying to learn in our private lives as well. So that people see that learning is a constant habit. You've got to learn all the time. You've got to have this big learner's board around your neck. You've got to be learning all the time. Never stop learning. Never stop learning. So, so looking to the future then, and, and I've got a few questions on that. Like many organizations, the British Army is undergoing digital transformation and, and adapting to global challenges, global changes in the workplace, and as well as uh, to society as well. And you touched on it again on your last answer, but what are the challenges that future leaders are likely to face? And what, are the, what do you feel are the key leadership attributes or, or skills that you think will, will be relevant, whether they're whether they endure from the, the, the from the past or, or whether they're new? You know, there's stuff from the past that will still be important, an ability to create a shared vision, the ability to have a point of view of where the future is headed to, um, the ability to have emotional intelligence, to know where, sense your people, know where they're coming from. In addition, you need to have a huge sense of resilience because we're all going to have to try new things and fail a lot more. Learning agility, which was important, but has become hugely important today. Consumer love or knowing who you're in service of and having love for that constituent. Things like empathy and compassion, which was seen as, you know, something soft and cuddly out there. But empathy and compassion is so important in today's day and age as a leader. So, you know, knowing where your people are coming from, having real empathy for what they're going through, understanding their struggles. And the ability to adapt to change constantly because change is upon us all the time. You know, today we are all learning to work virtual, hybrid. God knows how we are all going to challenge the old ways of working. But we need leaders who are willing to be humble, who are willing to be curious, who are willing to experiment and try new things and not hold on to their own rigid points of view from the past. People who are willing to trust their teams that they know the answers better. So a combination of humility and curiosity is going to be so important in the future. And what can we learn from our younger leaders, the, the newer generations, the Gen Zs and uh, yeah. the workforce now? How, how do they differ? And how, what, from your experience of, as I say, almost three decades in, in the company, what changes have you seen of generational attitudes, values, perspectives? And, and how, how challenging is that uh, multi-generational leadership now? I'm usually inspired by young leaders. See, I do think that leaders who can understand the differences between generations will make for better leaders because it is true. The needs, the attitudes change. 
you know, we were just looking in detail this morning and it says that people above the age of 50 and under the age of 25 are the ones struggling the most by not coming to office every day. Yeah. So office going population, you can already see the difference The, you know, so everything, if you can bring a multi-generational lens to everything, that's very useful because needs are different. What I see in many of the Gen Z leaders coming up, you know, people who are between the ages of 18 and 25, and it includes both my sons, is that they genuinely care about the world. They want the world to be a better place. You know, they care about, you know, switching off lights if lights are on in the house. They want to consume green. They want to eat less meat. They want to have less waste. They truly care. They worry about, they love inclusion. I mean, one word which is not inclusive will, you know, get you bad stares. They are naturally inclusive. They believe everybody should get a chance to do whatever they want to do. So I think those are great strengths. They also will force the workforce to become more flexible in the ways of working because they naturally switch off from work to play, to play, to work. They live their lives online, you know. It's like my youngest son, oh, I'm going to meet friends. And I see him in the room. I say, where are you meeting friends? Oh, I'm just playing an online game with them and we're all playing together and it's all a lot of fun. And for him, that's enough. That's like physical interaction, having this virtual interaction with his friends over one of those new platforms that's coming. So they will teach us new ways of engagement that blend the physical and the virtual in unbelievable ways. And they truly care. So they will force companies to be more purposeful because they care. They will force companies to create brands that do good in the world because they will buy brands that do good in the world. And they will force us all to be far more inclusive because they care about that a lot. So I feel very encouraged by seeing some of the new generation leader. I think the the changes that they will bring to the workforce, to the workplace, will make us a more robust 21st century world. And, and the other future challenge that a lot of people obviously are talking about is the exponential advances in technology and how that's going to impact the workforce. And how, how do you see that affecting leadership challenges today? Oh, huge. I've spoken extensively and written extensively about the future of work because I think the future work is human. It's about upskilling, reskilling everyone. But we are not robots. We can't wake up one morning and say, now I'm going to go and get upskilled into something else. I'm a ballet dancer today, tomorrow I'm going to go and write code. It doesn't work like that. You've got to work with the human processes to get people engaged into new careers they can do, new skills they can learn. So I do think that reskilling, upskilling to the new skills needed is going to be on every leadership agenda. Yeah, I believe that digitization is going to accelerate the trends we already saw, which is the trends where hierarchies are getting challenged. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't do hierarchy in a virtual setting. You know, you're all together. You see each other's intimate lives when you're in uh, a virtual setting. So I do believe digitization has just accelerated the trends that we could already see. Trends like inclusion, trends like speed, trends like breakdown hierarchies, trends like more pioneering, more experimentation. But this massive digitization has just accelerated all those trends. I do believe that we must reinvent work because the last 18 months, everybody has thought about, do we have to keep working the same way we did all these years? You know, wake up in the morning, catch a train, go to work, da, 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 commute for an hour and a half, work for 10 hours, come back. Do it 40 weeks a year, take your, 
we've got to challenge that. You know, we're doing an experiment in New Zealand where we're trying four-day working week to see if that works. I don't know if it's going to work, but we're trying. So I do believe this is a moment of reinvention. Let's not waste it. It's a moment of reinvention because of digitization, because of technology, because of what's happened with COVID. It's a moment where leaders everywhere must reinvent and reimagine workplaces, workforce, the ways we work, the how we work, the traditional employment models. So I believe it's a big leadership moment. We can't let this crisis go to waste. We can't let this moment of COVID go to waste. We've got to reinvent new things. We've got to pioneer new things. You certainly hear your passion and your positivity mm-hmm. there, Lena. It's great to, great to hear and see. Um, I'm really conscious that time is against us. So if I may, we're going to uh, wrap up with a few quick fire questions. Who is your most inspirational leader from history and why? <laughs> this is a tough one. Actually, it's a combination of so many people. Like I admire Nelson Mandela for what he stood for. There's so much to admire in Mahatma Gandhi and what he did. There's so many leaders I look up to, but it's bits and bobs. I like somebody's vision, somebody's purposefulness. And, uh, you know, so often I'm inspired by people in the company who are doing incredible things, you know. We had Maggie from the U.S. who donated her kidney to a colleague who is suffering. I mean, who does things like that? So I'm inspired by my colleagues, by the unsung heroes in and around us who don't get mentioned in history books, but who inspire me incredibly. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I can definitely relate to that. Most valuable leadership lesson you have learned? If it's to be, it's up to me. Don't, I have so little patience for people who are victims. If you see a problem, ask yourself, what can I do about it? So if it's to be, it's up to me. Don't wait for the world. Tackle stuff that bothers you. Take it on. Take a first step, but do it. With hindsight, what would you tell a young Alina Nair, the young trainee manager about leadership? I would tell the young Alina Nair to relax a lot more, to enjoy the journey as much as the destination. I think I've spent too many of my youthful years worrying about things, pointless things. Ah, is my boss going to like me? Am I, what did I do wrong? Oh, crying tears over a missed promotion or whatever it is. And I would just tell my younger self, relax. You'll you'll get to do what you want to do. Just enjoy the journey. A final question. What is society's biggest leadership challenge in the future? I think the two biggest challenges that every leader, every business, every institution should worry about, which is climate change and social inequality. And we can't let that go out of our sight. Those are the two biggest things we all need to be solving for. How do we create a more equal world for everybody? And how do we take care of our planet and our resources? What a great way to finish. Lena there, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Well, as you might expect from someone of Lena's vast experience amassed over a career spanning almost three decades, there is much to take away from our conversation today. From Lena's somewhat humble beginnings growing up in a small city in southern India, evidently very positively influenced by her mother and her father, who ingrained in her the values and moral groundings that guide her to this day. Values that Lena says keeps her grounded without dulling her ambition and drive making her want to grab every opportunity that life offers. She spoke about how you need to seek out your purpose and pursue it even if other people around you are telling you not to. And she draws on her own example of making the switch from engineering to human resources early on in her career, where she was following what she loved over what other people would often approve of or expect of her. 
I also like Lena's notion of your inner and outer game and the importance of working on your inner game first, which she defines as a sense of purpose, personal resilience, and a learning agility. And it's through that inner game that you strengthen your outer game. On failure, Lena points out that we are potentially likely to fail more than we succeed in certain contexts, but failure should be viewed as a stepping stone to success, what she describes as creating a culture of leapfrog learning. And again, she shared a story of a very public failure that she experienced, yet by turning a negative into a positive and galvanizing her team and encouraging some very unconventional thinking, they together were able to turn the tide on that failure. She stated, if you take that moment of misery, you can change things and make it into a moment of delight. She also spoke about resistance to change, something which I imagine is familiar to many of us. And for this, Lena has a, a rule of three. The top third have the ideas, willing to change and willing to back you. The second third will go in the direction of the wind is blowing. And the final third will never change. They will be negative and will tell you how everything is wrong with your plan. She said, you need to work on the top third. And once you have their backing, the second third will also start to follow. And from there, you've got your momentum for change. I was also particularly interested in Lena's view on cross-cultural leadership, a particular issue for a global company like Unilever, where across 190 different national cultures, there is no one-size-fits-all approach. As she stated, we are in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. So you need to adapt your practice and your communication depending on the cultural context. In some cultures, people need to see the step-by-step -step plan, whilst others will follow your vision. But ultimately, if they believe in the message and believe in the path you have set, they will follow you. And finally, Lena left us with an, a very optimistic view of the new generation of leaders entering the workforce. Leaders, she says, that have a real interest in making the world a better place, who will teach us more ways to engage, who will force the development of brands that will do good, and who she believes will bring change that will make for a more robust 21st century world. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment, that would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.